The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in today's show, we'll talk about a music festival in a park in Harlem in 1969. The documentary about it, Summer of Soul, may be the most powerful and moving thing about the 60s I've seen anywhere. And the story it tells was completely unknown. The footage sat in a basement for nearly 50 years, and no one cared. John Powers will comment. First up, COVID vaccines, the Delta variant, and Joe Biden. In an effort to stop the global spread of the virus, Joe Biden made what he called a monumental commitment to send 500 million vaccine doses abroad. And he's also waived intellectual property restrictions for the vaccine manufacturer, permitting countries around the world to manufacture their own vaccines. But the spread of the Delta variant in the United States and the fact that only 1% of people in the world's low-income countries have received even one dose of vaccine suggests Biden must do more. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic and he's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonzalez, welcome back. Thanks, John. So would you describe Joe Biden's actions on COVID as a monumental commitment? The check is in the mail is sort of the way I'd think about it. Um, a couple of things. One is the TRIPS waiver commitment was nice and unexpected. Um, nobody's done it before. We're all pleased. But we all said months ago that that was not enough to, to stem the tide of new infections around the world. Um, and that allowing tech transfer to happen or helping tech transfer to happen so we could scale up more doses, both domestically or uh, in plants and facilities around the world were the next necessary step and subsidizing that scale up was gonna be important. The president has said he will donate 500 million doses. How many has he donated so far? Not not as many as, as he's committed to, but the scale of what's necessary now is like in the billions of doses. And that's simply not on the table by the administration for some bizarre reason, um, because I don't understand how perpetuating the pandemic around the world really is a, a good foreign policy option for, for, for Mr. Biden. In The Nation, you say there are three things Biden could do right now 
number one on your list is for us to produce a lot more uh, of the vaccines to send to the global south. What, what would that take? I think we need to do two things in tandem in terms of production. A group called Prep for All in New York City has suggested that working under current frameworks of the Defense Production Act, um, under the sort of cognizance that we own some of the patents on the Moderna mRNA vaccine, and we have $10 billion in the bank from the American Rescue Act, we could scale up mRNA production in the U.S. by asking Lanza, which is Moderna's contractor, to help build another site, to work with uh, the company itself or with people who helped develop the mRNA vaccine to build, to retrofit other plants. The idea is that being close to home, being close to the company that uh, originally made the vaccine, you know, we could get this done quickly with the resources of the entire U.S. government behind it. It's not alone sufficient to, to get us where we need to go. WHO has called for a multilateral sort of distributed network of vaccine production hubs. And the first one they announced is in South Africa, but they've yet to make an arrangement with any of the mRNA companies uh, to scale up. And so um, if we can get some domestic production going under the current framework of U.S. law with resources and the power of the federal government, great. We should also be pouring money into these vaccine hubs so that at the same time we're building up domestic capacity, we build up international capacity as well, not leaving them dependent the next time we come around with a pandemic that we need to face together. So you use the term production hubs rather than just factories. What, what exactly is a vaccine hub? I think the idea is that each of the regions around the world are gonna to need to be able to produce vaccines, not just for COVID, not just for the current moment, but over the long term, and to create sort of a, a, a regional um, hub where different manufacturers and different kinds of vaccines are being made um, that may not be the province of one, one originating manufacturer. It might be for multiple diseases. There might be different parts of the vaccine that are made at different places at the hub in South Africa or in, in Southern Africa, for instance. And so I think the idea from the WHO's perspective is that it's a hub and spoke model. So South Africa could supply for the Southern African region, one in Senegal could supply for West Africa, another one in Kenya for East Africa, then we could go to Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the idea is that these hubs supply the spokes, the countries that are surrounding them in a given world region. More production in the United States, development of these hubs in the global south. And the third thing Biden should be doing, you say, is dealing with the millions of doses here in the United States already manufactured that are unused and approaching their expiration dates. What, what should we know? What should we do about that? Well, supply is exceeding demand in the U.S. And so with the current production schedules, we're not going to run out of doses for Americans. But what we stockpile thus far, we shouldn't make a commitment that we're going to do it at some point. We should do it now. What we're seeing in Indonesia and in South Africa and Zambia and other places around the world is, is a con conflagration. And really, you know, are seeing their, their worst moments of the COVID pandemic thus far, spawning new variants like the Delta variant that none of us ever heard of six months ago, but we, we ignored it our peril. So Let's get the vaccines that we're not using out there. And this doesn't go just for us, it goes for Canada. It goes for other countries that are, that are hoarding doses right now. Um, and so let's do everything we can at the current moment to, to expand access for the current moment, but also for the next three, six, eight, nine, 10, 12 months and into, into 2022. Biden could have done all of this months ago. Why do you think he hasn't? You could sort of manufacture lots of exotic reasons about why this isn't happening. But the most obvious one is that 
the companies who make these vaccines are completely opposed to any sort of sharing of intellectual property um, of anybody else making the vaccines but them. mRNA is a platform that can make dozens and dozens of kinds of vaccines for many, many, many diseases. It's a proverbial golden goose. And they do not want anybody's fingers on, on their goose. The point is, is that the president is taking his cues from the CEOs. President Biden has shown a sort of deference to industry in, in certain ways over the course of his career. And this is just another one of those. And let's talk about the new Delta variant. One of the countries that it's hit especially hard is Israel. The number of new cases there has climbed from 10 per day in early June to more than 1,000 per day now, the end of July. What should we conclude from this? The Delta variant is much more infectious than uh, our original COVID or SARS-CoV-2 strain. Most of the people who are getting infected with the Delta variant are unvaccinated individuals. Um, there's some sense that you know people with the J&J vaccination may be less well protected than the mRNA vaccines. But by and large, you know, this is a much more virulent strain of the virus in terms of its ability to transmit. And so the breakthrough infections we're seeing in, in different settings is the fact that the force of infection, the sheer sort of um, wall of virus that comes out of you when you're carrying this strain is much uh, more or more grievous than the, than the ones we've seen before. So, you know, if you have a little bit of immunosuppression, if you're a little bit older and your immune response isn't as robust as it as it used to be, you, know, you may be at greater susceptibility, but you might even be fully vaccinated and fully antibodied up against COVID-19. But with enough virus around you, that 5%, you know, when we talk about efficacy, it's not, nothing's 100%. You could be exposed to so much virus that, that it breaks through your, your immune defenses conferred by the, by the vaccine. Most cases, you're going to be fine. Mild infection, maybe asymptomatic. Um, again, most people in the hospitals right now are either um, unvaccinated by choice or, 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 or by lack of access to them if you're outside of this country. So the projections for the United States are that as a result of the Delta variant, the surge will accelerate steadily through the summer and fall and peak in mid-October when daily deaths will be more than triple what they are now. This comes from the COVID-19 scenario modeling hub described as a consortium of researchers working in consultation with the CDC. Those projections, of course, are based on a whole bunch of, of assumptions. Do you think that's a reasonable prediction of what's gonna happen? So most epidemiologists and disease modelers I know don't project more, out, more than about three to four weeks out because things change rapidly, right? You know, there could be the Epsilon variant and then, you know, there goes all of our predictions. But with still refusal to get vaccinated in, in many places in the US with mask wearing becoming less and less common, Delta is still going to cut a wide swath through the unvaccinated population in the U.S. Well, I think the assumption is that as Delta becomes more prevalent and more people get it, that uh, more people will get, get vaccinated in response. But of course, that's an assumption. Yeah, I mean, over the past few days, there's been an uptick in, in vaccinations in the U.S., which is, is um, good to see. You know, even um, people who've been basically horrible on, on COVID since the beginning, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders is urging people to get vaccinated. So I think there's a little bit of a come to Jesus moment for some GOP politicians who've ignored the seriousness of the pandemic as the burden of 
new infections and deaths and hospitalizations bears down on their, their states and their towns and cities. Let's talk a little bit more about vaccine refusal and vaccine reluctance in the United States. The statistics we're told are, the, of course, the political divide is significant nationwide. 86% of Democrats have had at least one shot compared with 52% of Republicans. And as you say, some Republicans are now strongly recommending vaccination. Mitch McConnell is one. Mitt Romney said on Wednesday, quote, the politicization of vaccination is an outrage and frankly moronic, close quote. But of course, politics isn't the only dividing line. Uh, the New York Times recently had a fascinating figure that in Princeton, 75% of adults uh, are immunized. In Trenton, just 14 miles south, only 45% are. And both of these are equally democratic towns. Of course, Princeton is white and wealthy. Trenton is black and Latino and poor. So politics isn't the only dividing line here. No, look, we've had hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. for a while. And um, we've had suspicion of the medical establishment for a while, uh, often in communities that have been made as guinea pigs for medical experiments, like the Tuskegee experiments done to African-Americans. Um, and so there's a lot of suspicion of, of the, the U.S. government. You know, and so that's slightly different than someone who is listening to you know, Tucker Carlson pontificate about vaccines and making a decision based on that kind of information. And you have to approach people in different ways. The, the main thing is that public health is, is nonpartisan. You know, every Republican, every Democrat, and every independent needs to get vaccinated for us to get out of this pandemic. And nobody cares whether you're a, in a red state or a blue state, who you voted for when you're lying in an ICU bed. Um, and so we're going to need to figure out how to sort of bridge the, the partisan divides here. Um, as a matter of national survival, um, nobody wants to see the hospitals in Mississippi or Alabama collapse under the weight of, of, of the pandemic. Nobody wants to see people die um, unnecessarily from a virus uh, that can be prevented through vaccination. Getting back to just at the end here to the, the global um, scene, I quoted that figure that 1% of the poorest people of the world have been vaccinated. Uh, we've talked about American responsibility. What do we know about the Chinese and Russian vaccines? Do we know anything more about them now than the last time you and I talked, which was a couple of months ago? They haven't been shown to be very effective compared to, to the mRNA vaccines or even Johnson & Johnson. Um, and I think what you're seeing in, in many cases is Buyers remorse from the countries who uh, originally sort of made orders for those vaccines early on as they see their pandemic sort of explode, even in the context of, of using the Sputnik vaccine or the, or the Sinovac. So, um, you know, the real point here is that we have two extremely effective, extremely safe vaccines made by Moderna and Pfizer. They can be scaled up um, on, at, a, at a level that we have not done thus far. Um, the companies are saying you'll have all you need in 2022. If we said that on national TV in the U.S. to our own citizens, you know, we probably could make a lot more of this, but, you know, wait a year or so, you'll be fine. Um, I think we'd have um, riots in the streets, red states or blue states, because people want to be first in line. Uh, and we're telling everybody else to go, go to the back of the bus. Greg Gonsalves, he wrote about 
three things Biden can do right now to stop COVID and save lives. You can read them at thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, John. We have to talk about Summer of Soul, a documentary about a music festival in a park in Harlem in 1969. It might be the most powerful and moving thing I've seen about the 60s anywhere. And the story it tells is about a series of events that were completely unknown to almost all of us. The footage sat in a basement for nearly 50 years and no one cared. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of several million listeners. He's also been a film critic for Vogue and before that for the late lamented L.A. Weekly. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. John Powers, welcome back. Oh, glad to be here. So how did you like Summer of Soul? I like Summer of Soul. I mean, I mean, I, I, what's not to like about Summer of Soul? The thing is, even if one didn't like parts of the film, the musical performances in it are so fantastic with the full range of Black American music. And in fact, not just Black American music, African Black music and Cuban Black music. The people are so sensational that even if you didn't care about any of the political stuff, although you should, if even if you didn't care about it, you'd, you'd really enjoy yourself. And it's clear about the time frame in which this is happening. America in 1969, Nixon is president, the Vietnam War is raging. It's only a year after the assassinations of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. It's one year after huge riots in Harlem following the assassination of King. So it's a year with a huge burden of, of sadness and anger. And they are here, along with the joy of the music, especially personified by and enacted by Jesse Jackson. I would add to the historical thing, Whitey's on the moon. Because one of the things that in the film is that you even see a news broadcast from the period where, where the reporter goes to Harlem during this festival and asks people what they think of the moonshot. And let me tell you, they were less impressed than the white Americans that were interviewed <laughs> in, that, in that same broadcast. And that's part of it as well. And then you would add in, this is just weeks off the existence of Woodstock. It's sometimes been called Black Woodstock just for, for that reason. So you, you have this moment, and it is a spectacular moment, and then growing out of it is this music event that somehow takes on more meaning than a normal music event because it, it, it comes at the end into some, some sort of expression of, culmination of, and response to all of the things you just mentioned. Let's talk about the musical highlights. For me, I think it was... Uh... The gospel. As you say, there's many genres of black music at this many weeks of Sunday afternoons in the park. The Edwin Hawkins singers, Oh Happy Day. I mean, I haven't heard that for a long time, that great woman with the alto voice. And then there's the moment when the incredible Mavis Staples helps Mahalia Jackson sing Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which we are told is this Martin Luther King's favorite song. It's the one he requested just moments before he was killed. That is a pretty overwhelming moment on film. Oh, oh it is, you know, because what, what's interesting is, as they tell us, that M Mahalia is saying she's not feeling well. 
So she so she asked May the Staples to come, and then May the Staples sings it about as well as you could ever imagine it being sung, and then gives it over to Mahalia Jackson. And you know, it, it is as if Mount Everest or something, something of something so huge and elemental had spent their entire life training themselves to be a genius singer. <laughs> because, because it, and clearly there's a boost when she sings. Mavis Staples is great, and yet you can see why Mavis Staples says she idolizes Mahalia Jackson. Because Mahalia Jackson does seem to, oh, maybe she's like a volcano. Like All of the history and pain of this seems to be there in her body as she yeah. sings. She is so powerful and grounded and talented. I want to make sure I'm not saying that some of this is just like natural gifts. She's trained herself for decades to do this, to channel this incredible power of the terrible history of her people. And she does it. And it, it, is, it is a knockout. But I know the people who followed that on that day would have been cursing, cursing the festival organizers until the end of time for having to follow that performance. Yes. So this film has... Really, it's really two different films. There's the there's the footage shot in 1969 by some guy no one has ever heard of and no one ever heard of since who tried to get it and turned into some sort of a TV series and failed and then just kept the stuff in his basement and then died. It was not a great... Pro- I, I, I mean, I, I hate to be mean to him. He couldn't have been a great producer because, you know, he, he didn't seem to try hard enough or go to the right people you know, back at the time when the Muhammad Ali Kinshasa film came out, you would have thought, oh, you could have gone to some of those people then and said, oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah. we have this incredible, but they didn't, you know, so it, it has been, it been forgotten. So you have that footage. And then we have the footage shot in the last year or two by Questlove, uh, who has lined up some wonderful talking heads. Uh, let's talk about them. Well, I mean, I was happier with the, the talking heads who had just been the people who were there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think somehow I, I didn't need to see Chris Rock come and say his one <laughs> sentence about how important it was. Some of the famous people mattered less to me. There's one of the talking heads who is especially notable, and that's Charlene Hunter Galt, the black uh, news person. I had sort of forgotten her story, but she was the first black student at the University of Georgia. And she moved in. She tells the story of how she moved into the dorms. They put her alone on the first floor and the white girls were upstairs pounding on the ceiling above her room. And she says she drowned them out by playing Nina Simone records. Wow. I think it's actually also interesting because when when someone like Charlene Hunter Galt, they become famous for being distinguished. Yes. And you know, it's and it's very easy and it's easy to forget that before she was distinguished, she was incredibly brave. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. She was heroic before she, before she was a person that you thought of as just distinguished. And then she also tells the story of fighting with the New York Times to get the word black and rather than Negro, used as the standard at the newspaper. And she succeeded. And she succeeded. You know, <laughs> yes. you, you thought, like, you know, like, which is a, once again, a huge thing. Some of the other Questlove talking heads include the performers shot today, who he shows video of them 50 years ago on stage in Harlem, especially two people from the Fifth Dimension who, who tear up, uh, and uh, a magnificent Gladys Knight 
who says something important was happening that day and it wasn't just the music. It's great to see those people. Oh, it is great. You know, I mean, it's, it's actually interesting, be, you know, because you see Marilyn McCoo, who, you know, and part of the whole fifth dimension thing was that were they thought to be, people thought they were white. And if you're a black performer doing music that many people think means you're white, you know, it's important to perform for them there. And then, of course, the problem is Marilyn McCoo is exceedingly beautiful. So, I mean, so one of the yes. other things is she's yes. so beautiful that, that actually people there at the time are looking at her thinking, boy, she's really beautiful. Yeah. And, 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 and in fact, 50 years on, she's, she looks fantastic. Some of the various political people from that era, the Black Panther and so forth, it was actually interesting to hear them talk. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and that's good. And it's partly because the, the film has a shape and an argument to make. Um, and, you know, the, the shape is how it is this moment of this expression. And Mahalia Jackson fits in the logic of it. And, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, because I may be wrong with this. I, as I was watching, I was thinking, Mahalia Jackson is transcendence through faith and all of the pain in the world. And so and at some level, she's the past. Yes. In, in 1969, she's the past. Yes, she's been doing this for 30 years. She's been doing it for 30 years. And and somehow African-American politics have moved on somehow beyond that. At that moment, everyone worships her. She's so great, but they, they want something new. Probably Nina Simone is the present, which is you get the pain with her, but also with song like Young, Gifted, and Black, you get, the fu- you, you get a projection of the future. And then the film ends with Sly and the Family Stone because they are almost the embodiment of the future because they're different races, you know, women playing trumpets, which one of the people says, well, I've never seen a woman play a trumpet before. <laughs> yes, yes. And you know, they're wearing wild clothes and they are communal. They, you know, they are the age of Aquarius that the fifth dimension was singing about. And, but I think there's an argument so that you actually start with Mahalia Jackson and then you and then you go to Nina Simone and then Sly, Sly and the Family, or Sly and the Family Stone to end it. You know, and of course, Questlove in making this film hasn't shown it in order. I mean, right. I, it's an, it's very important to realize, you know, when you're watching it, that he, that he, as any sensible person would, wants to make an argument about about where things are going and and to end on the high of them singing, "I want to take you higher." Yes. You know, which which had incidentally was one of the high points of the film Woodstock, if you recall. I mean, is that this was the point where probably Sly and the Family Stone were much greater than probably a lot of us realized at the time, certainly a lot of white people realized at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were just spectacular. And this is, I believe, Questlove's first film. Who exactly is he? Oh, he was, he was a guy with the roots. You know, I, I mean, he's a drummer. Um, he was a musician. I mean, he clearly was a guy who is an expansive musician. You know, you know I, mean, I mean, some think out in larger ways. And clearly, this was an event when, when he discovered there's footage of it. I can imagine that he would leap to it, and then because he, you know he's politically minded. If if 1969 is is a point where you were going to have this event, probably the year after George Floyd and during at, at the end of Trumpism, this is the year you're going to bring that out as part of this huge explosion of great stuff that's suddenly being discovered or rediscovered. This is a, it's a movie about a moment at another moment that is the kind of, the same kind of moment where you're seeing all of this stuff coming together. Summer of Soul, Questlove's first film is running now on Hulu. 
John Powers. John, thank you. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.